Welcome to Pick a Little, Talk a Little, the weirdly named podcast where we talk about musicals and our feelings about musicals and about Ben Vereen's butt. <laughs> I'm your host, Gabrielle Gazelowitz, and my co-host here with me this week is... Ariel Shear. And Ariel, why don't you tell us what show we're talking about today? We are talking about Pippin. Pippin. Pippin Pippin, as it was originally called, but thank God they realized that that name was stupid. So... For background, what we just did is we sat down and we watched the filmed recording and we know the show really well and are familiar with it and we know what parts they cut out which were somewhat arbitrary and kind of frustrating. And in terms of our personal backgrounds with the show, Ariel, have you ever seen Pippin Live? I did. I saw the revival production that was on Broadway recently. As for my background, like about 60% of theater kids, I was in Pippin in high school. Uh, it was my senior year, and I was in the ensemble. So history as to the actual show Pippin, it premiered on Broadway in 1972. Ariel, you did some research about the origins of the show itself. Yeah, um, so Stephen Schwartz actually wrote part of the show and produced it when he was in college, I believe at Carnegie Mellon. It was like a one-act show. There's not much information on what was actually in the show, but he did a show called Pippin uh, while he was in college. He called it Pippin Pippin. He did call it Pippin Pippin, but it wasn't his first show that hit Broadway. So Stephen Schwartz, children, used to be like the cool off-Broadway composer. Ultimately, the way the show's credits are, are music by Stephen Schwartz, lyric by Stephen Schwartz, book by Roger O. Herson, and then it's book by Bob Fosse, sort of. And we're going to get into all the Bob Fosse stuff. But Bob Fosse directed and choreographed the original production. And to say his fingerprints are all over it would be a discredit to the rest of his body. So <laughs> it's a Bob Fosse show and it's the Bob Fosse show. And so what we do in this podcast is we talk about a show in order of the plot and we use the songs to get us from one plot point to the next. And this show is a little bit tricky because there's not really a plot. Yeah, there's not like one full cohesive plot, but there's an overarching theme in the show. It's okay, I wrote down when we're going to argue about feminism, so okay, great. that's what... <laughs> oh, in terms of is this an original musical, you know, is it not based on source material? I think it's sort of like a weird in-between because Pippin was a real historical figure, and this show has jack all to do with him like i've read his wikipedia page a couple of times so also what the show is and a lot of the original design which we will also talk about it reminds me of like old christian pageants where these moralistic tales of the everyman but obviously it's a more complex take on that so as we go forward i'm gonna keep on thinking we know what the show is trying to do but does it work because i love this show part of me that loves this show is a 14 year old I love this show regardless of age. I think it is a timeless tale about adolescence. All right, so why don't you start us off and tell us how the show begins. Okay. And I will interrupt you to talk about <laughs> Ben Vereen. Well, the show begins with hands. Hands all over the stage. I'm doing jazz hands, which I have to... <laughs> if you say jazz hands, this podcast is an audio medium. Anyway. The show starts with the song Magic To Do, where kind of introduces the show as a whole in some of the one lines it foreshadows the plot or kind of just tells you flat out what's going to happen but it establishes that there's like a troupe of actors or players and that they're going to be performing for you tonight <laughs> that's the sound i make when i see ben vereen show up anywhere <laughs> into my life Here's something interesting is there's a lot of information out there, some of it confirmed, some of it biased, about what Bob Fosse contributed to this show. A general consensus is that he helped combine a lot of the minor characters into the leading player. And the leading player is more important and better than Pippin in every way. He gets final bow. Or she. The leading player is uh, Ben Vereen in this production. So Pippin is a show where some casting is really, really important and some casting is just like anyone pretty enough and who can carry a tune. I'm talking about Pippin. So Ben Vereen is this leading player who's this sort of 
not exactly star, but main supporting actor and director and like stage manager all rolled into one. And he is the one who is the aim to Pippin's aimlessness. Is the point of the show is that Pippin doesn't know what's going on. The leading player not only knows what's going on, but it's his job to make sure that we get there. Kind of forces his hand. It's interesting to see where the show is going based on how much the leading player is asserting himself and what he's choosing to do. That we see when when he gets sort of flustered, when it happens little bits and more over time, you're sort of wondering, is this going the way it's supposed to go? So Ben Vereen is a good singer, a fantastic actor, and his dancing is unreal. Here's another thing. I said I was in Pippin in high school. Pippin is a show that every high school does, every community theater does. Pippin is a really adult show. Yeah, I think in part the dancing and the choreography is what makes it racy. But there are, there are some themes in there, like we'll get to an orgy later. And we will discuss what one wears to such an orgy. <laughs> so by the end of Magic To Do, we're introduced to Pippin. He's whatever. He's, like you said, the everyman. But we're introduced to him in a way that's interesting because the leading player says that the actor performing the role of Pippin's Knight is new. This is his first time playing the role, which is a plot point that kind of drives the entire show is that it's setting it up to show that this is an unusual performance of the show. And it's part of the weird internal logic of the show that Pippin both does and doesn't know he's performing and both is and isn't. The first thing we hear from him is that he would like more light on stage. And so that you think, okay, he's definitely ready to play along. But then immediately you know that he's more of a reactor than an actor in a lot of ways. I mean, this show breaks the fourth wall all over the place. That's true. So Pippin has his first song, Corner Corner of the Sky. Do you like this song, Ariel? I actually really do like this song. This was... Probably the first song that I knew from the show, my mom used to sing it to me. I think it was like one of my bedtime songs as she would sing me Corner of the Sky. I always thought it was beautiful. I love Corner of the Sky. This is sort of the first time that we're starting to hit the conflict, essentially, between Fosse and Schwartz. Stephen Schwartz once said in an anecdote that he was talking to another writer, and when he mentioned Bob Fosse, the writer said, Oh, the Antichrist. Because Bob Fosse was going to do what Bob Fosse was going to do. And part of Fosse's thing was he looked at the show and he said, like, this show is silly, it's fluffy, I know what I'll do, I'll make it dark and weird and edgy, and it is. So we had Corner of the Sky as this, like, beautiful, sweet song about finding oneself, and Stephen Schwartz has this cute little anecdote where he asked his wife where people fit, and she's like, oh, like, cats fit on a windowsill. And it's all cute. And... The way it's directed, originally Pippin is playing the song straight, but we have the entire ensemble around him being super weird and creepy and unmoved and impasses, and they like applaud sarcastically when the song is over. I I saw that in a completely different light. I mean, I saw all the actors behind Pippin just kind of watching him. It made it seem more like a soliloquy that he was performing and that In this performance, he was performing to the cast as well as the audience. We do go from the general to the reasonably specific to it being, this is a show about a journey, about someone who wants to find meaning from life. Right. Now we're introducing the other characters. There are technically other characters, but there's no three-dimensional characters in the show. So you just have to be comfortable with the fact that no one has any nuance to them. Except for maybe the leading player who has kind of no dimensions and transcends dimension in like space-time and lives in his own alternate dimension of Ben Vereen-ness. But we get the setting, which is Pippin in the court of Charlemagne in like the 1780s Holy Roman Empire, which was not holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. And we get a sort of song. We're introduced to Charlemagne. We're introduced to his wife, Fistrata, and his son, Louis, and Pippin is coming home from university, and the song is entitled Welcome Home, and that's really the only lines to the song. Oh, there are a couple other lines. But yeah, it doesn't really do much. I don't even know why it's really sung. 
It's not in the cast album. It is listed on the site as a song. So pretty quickly, Pippin is home from university trying to decide what he's going to do to his life. So Pippin decides that maybe he can find meaning following in his father's footsteps, waging war. And that's the thing about the show. There's sort of weird stretches without songs, and then we get a whole bunch of songs in a row. The next song is War is a Science, which has been rewritten a couple of times. I don't know why. It's one of the only songs that arguably doesn't need rewriting in the show. But the version on the cast album was different from the version that we had just watched, which is different from the new cast album. I don't know. This song is kind of just changes a lot. But I, I love it. It's such a good patter song. It's really smart. It's satirical without being too on the nose, which I know, once again, is sort of the show's style. But I love the choreography of this the, song. The choreography is great. It's everyone fossying. It's everyone sort of posing in these grotesque manners and moving as this sort of mindless army that's the precursor to the violence. Right. I also love it because it's a very Stephen Schwartz song. I mean, Stephen Schwartz kind of has two modes. He has, like, over-the-top sentimental, and he has, like, look how clever I'm being, which is why in Wicked it involves, like, making up words. And here we also have... Oh, it's so wordy. It's so wordy. It's I only know the original cast recording one by heart. I kind of want to learn all of them. (laughs) Maybe Stephen Schwartz just couldn't help himself. I like that idea, and the version that we just watched still fit into the same meter. The new recording kind of speeds it up to a ridiculous extent. Because Terrence the man-man can do what he wants. <laughs> so Pippin gets to war. And, and he's not very good at it. But we get such a good song, though, because <laughs> Pippin's not in it. I love numbers in this that don't have Pippin. But he keeps interrupting. Now we get to the war, to the battlefield. Oh, yeah. And we have Glory. My exact notes here were all Ben, yes. Hips in capital letters. Lots Uh, of hip thrusts. I try to keep this podcast, like, family-friendly, but, like, this show is resisting with all its might. There's a lot of dance breaks in this song that are just... I don't even care about the context anymore, but... Glory is another number that's like, is it too on the nose? Because they're like, hey, he's going to go to war. We're in like sort of post-Vietnam America. Not even, I guess. Like, watch us like talk about how bad war is. Remember how many people war killed? It's kind of dated. Not that we have a different, you know, we every generation has a different relationship to war. And here it very much speaks to people who felt bad about Vietnam. There's an interlude here that... Gabby's talking about where they list all of the casualties of all the major wars and how many people have died and have been injured. So war doesn't work out for Pippin. You know what else this film production cut out was when he talks to the dead soldier? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Pippin like has a conversation with the dead guy and the dead's like, "Mm, I was a Visigoth. I was a heathen. You killed me. Um, I was a nice guy, even though I was trying to kill you. You should feel bad about it. And Pippin has this crisis of confidence, and then we go into simple joys. So Pippin essentially is so upset with how war has gone and how he feels and about how it wasn't flashy and fun, but like awful and dirty, even though the show makes it flashy because it's being ironic. So once again, it's like, is it succeeding? I don't know. But he runs off and Ben Vereen sings Simple Joys or whoever the leading player is. It could be Patina Miller. I mean, Simple Joys is kind of just the leading player pushing the plot along. He's like, okay, war didn't work out for you. Here, try this now. But it's so great and so fun. And it feels like everyone is contributing. Like it's a good melody and it's good lyrics so it's like Steven Schwartz is pulling his weight. I really like it too and I think one of the reasons I do like it is that they manage to use the lyrics not only for the set change they're using the choreography and the whole magic portion that's in the show to kind of facilitate this. Yeah they randomly do a lot of magic in this show because that's a recurring theme or something. Also, Ariel is a set designer, and <laughs> there's a moment where the leading player does a magic trick, and he's, like, pulling a handkerchief out of, like, a secret hole, and he pulls it, and it's the whole set, and Ariel's face just <laughs> lit up. It's also at the point where he says the line, we all could use a change of scene, and the set just piece just pops out of the floor. And, I mean, flying set pieces, yeah, they're done all the time, but this set piece just, like... Like, having this piece rise out of the floor, that's something completely different. 
And that brings us pretty much straight to our next number, which is no time at all. So we meet Bertha. Yeah, Bertha's Pippin's grandma. He goes to her because she's like living in exile and he figures she can impart some wisdom. And she pretty much tells him to just like enjoy life. And this is the point where I feel like it probably behooves us to mention Irene Ryan, who played Bertha in the original run. The urban legend is that she dropped dead on stage. So that didn't happen. So as far as I was able to determine, at the end of one performance and during one performance, she looked really, really bad. And they essentially took her backstage and were like, you really need to go on a vacation. And she died some weeks later. Anyway, moment for Irene Ryan, who is delightful in the original cast recording. Uh, I just love the line, um, men in their wars, sometimes I think they raise the flag when they can't get anything else up. I just yeah. think that's a great line. I mean, the whole point of, I guess, Bertha's character is she's this elderly grandmother, but she's just very sex obsessed. She- what do you mean, but? A lot of butts in this show. <laughs> there are a lot of butts in this show. I mean, if you, if you want to introduce the sex and stuff, you usually pick, like, I guess a young, attractive person. But here's this, like, older woman singing about, but what could make you feel more obsolete than being noted for your morals? She's not singing only about going out and having fun times with another person. She's speaking about a general sort of, I don't know, hedonistic light sort of attitude of, of just enjoying life. And when she's imparting this message, it sounds really cute and sweet and fun. And then when Pippin takes it to the logical extreme, that's when he gets into trouble. Can we just talk about how, or I guess in the middle of this song, um, the leading player pops out and reprises a line from Magic To Do. Oh yeah, that they're breaking it down and being like, we told you there'd be things like intrigue, plots to bring disaster, humor. They don't actually bring up humor again. Here's the line is, sex presented pastorally. When I was singing along when I was 16, I was like, romance, sex presented (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, basically what happens in, in this dance number is exactly what that line says. We're up to with you, which I believe is another song that Fosse decided to ironize, which I'm making into a word because the dissonance in the song is great because Pippin's singing like a straightforward love song and then you see him like... He's singing to three different women. Yeah. Well, okay. He keeps getting distracted. Grapes on the booze. (laughs) And they're all doing Fosse choreography. Who can blame him? We just watched watched an orgy scene where he got, like, lifted and, like, put down pelvis to pelvis on top of a bunch of rotating ensemble lady cast members. Also, like, Pippin does all that stuff and he, like, doesn't really experiment with guys. There's, like, one little joke about it and it's like, no, come on. That's a cop-out. There's a couple of things about this song. One is 70s culture. This is, like, early 70s. And it's sort of post-free love, beginning of like 70s swinging, when essentially people are getting exhausted. (laughs) There was a sexual revolution, and there was the idea that you didn't have to treat sex as a married monogamous thing. And as a result, there were people going completely overboard and partying and burning out. And that's what the song is. So that's well, another that's what the dance number is. Yeah. But here's the thing is that Pippin is episodic and it's like him trying war, him trying sex, spoiler alert, him trying sort of politics. And the idea is supposed to be that like one after the other is the same. And even when they seem pretty good for a while, none of them are ultimately really fulfilling. But I feel like it's a little bit insulting to equate like partying too hard with like going to war and killing people. I know it's not literally saying they're the same. I mean, they didn't even give Pippin a chance to, like, take a nap. Maybe if Pippin had taken a nap, (laughs) there's no chance for him to find balance. I mean, that's something with Pippin's life, is that he's going around and he's just running to extremes and not trying to find balance. This kind of brings it back to the adolescence thing for me, is that when you're a teenager, you're kind of just, like, you're flitting from one thing to another. Like, everything is new, you're finally realizing that there are pieces about yourself that you're trying to explore, and you kind of, you jump around a lot, and I I think this is kind of showing that he is flitting from one thing to another, but not sticking with it long enough for it to actually mean anything. 
that's a really good point. But because Pippin is played by an adult actor and like he's sort of supposed to be an adult, it can come off as really annoying. I feel sometimes it's just like, oh, a musical about like a straight white guy who doesn't know what to do with his life because it's so hard being the prince of the Holy Roman Empire and having all these women want to sleep with you. Boo hoo. Pretty much after he gives up on sex, he switches to politics. And this is where we actually get the sort of pseudo history for like a second. Okay, so Pippin's about to kill his father, so we get spread a little sunshine. Yep. Now, this song, I... And I guess the whole character of Fistrata is I love to hate her. In the in the movie version we just watched, it's Cheetah Rivera. And she <laughs> yeah. is her Cheetah Riveriest. Oh my god, there's a, in the choreography, so, so the whole thing is a metaphor for like, oh, women and their sexual wiles, like stealing power from men. And I know it's not meant to be sexist, but... This isn't even where I was going to get into my feminist rant. In the metaphor of like her and her power of seduction and taking the throne, she does this whole part of the dance with a crown around her thigh. And I just kept yeah. worrying it was going to poke her. It was like, that was like really impressive. Do you like Spread a Little Sunshine as a song? I do like it as a song. I feel like I shouldn't like it because of where it is in the show. And like, you're not supposed to like Vistrata. She is the antagonist as much as there can be an antagonist in this show. Well, I mean, the leading player. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of neither protagonist nor antagonist. I'm totally open to musicals having somewhat useless, pointless numbers as long as they're great. This is so great, I don't care if it doesn't do anything. So during his bout with politics, he's deciding that he now needs to kill... Charlemagne, his father, in order to take the throne. And Vistrata, Charlemagne's wife, is kind of okay with this whole plan, and she's like, well, if Pippin kills Charlemagne, my son Louis will be next for the throne, and if Charlemagne finds out and kills Pippin, Louis stills next in line. So, kind of win-win. Yeah. And she doesn't really care about her husband or her stepson. She really just wants the power. And it's weird because she has this line that she repeats a couple of times where she's like, oh, I'm just an ordinary housewife and mother. She looks to the audience, just like all you housewives and mothers out there, and it's like, ha ha ha, women are secretly conniving and terrible. This musical has essentially three women in it. Bertha's the most sort of interesting in terms of being different. She shows up, she's like the sassy, sexy grandma. And then you have Estrada, who even if you get a great actress to play her, like Cheetah gives a great performance. And like, I know everyone is two-dimensional, but the women who are two-dimensional are two-dimensional in stereotypically female ways. And it's a show where the everyman is an everyman. So like, there's gonna be a little bit of interesting stuff with Catherine. But not that interesting. I mean, I, I like Fistrata more than I like Catherine. Oh, for sure. I hate Catherine. <laughs> so Pippin kills his father. Whatever. No big deal. And then we have Morning Glow. It's kind of a sweet, like, it, it's a good end of act or beginning of act two song. I forget which one. I think they flip it. I think it depends on, on the production. Yeah. So it's either the song that is the end of act one or the beginning of act two. Um, and it's kind of like, well, now you're our leader. Like, this is the new day. Do your best. It's a pretty song. Well, there's not really much substance, by the way, of no. lyrics. The show is so buried in direction and style that I can't tell what's intentional and what's not. I can't tell if it's like, oh, ironic or something that, or subversive or whatever, that Morning Glow has like no substance to it when Pippin has just taken this huge act, or if it's just Stephen Schwartz not doing a great job, or if it's Fosse trying to impose his vision over Stephen Schwartz and therefore making Stephen Schwartz's song look like it's not doing a good job. Bob Fosse, you can sit there and listen to the music of the show and never see, like, a single still, and it's still Bob Fosse. And, I mean, he wrote part of the book, even though they claim it's, like, if you go on IBDB, the, the, they'll be like, oh, Bob Fosse book, uncredited. I'm doing air quotes. I'm looking at the lyrics of this song now. It's kind of... I mean, oh, the morning are, glow. Are I'd like to help you grow. We should have started long ago. It's a throwaway song. There are pretty lines. Yeah. There's light imagery, which I guess will come back, because I'm thinking about how the end has this intense sun-fire imagery, and I was wondering if the show brings it up too late. So now I'm sort of, like, really searching and trying to be like, does glow, it, mate. maybe it spread a little sunshine? Yeah. It's a reach. 
So then pretty much Pippin fails to be king in one politically astute comedy scene where they like make little Vietnam references and it's like being a king is hard and bloody bloody Andrew Jackson did it better. And Pippin, because of the weird fantasy of the show, Pippin can literally undo the murder he committed because the leading player just makes it so and brings his father back to life. And it's like written off with a joke, which I think is pretty cool. It's another way to like keep pushing this along and also remind you that this is a farce. The, the whole show is this fantasy and nothing nothing really matters. But Pippin's still taking it really seriously. So, Ariel, how would you say Pippin is doing at this point in the show on his on his journey to be completely and totally fulfilled? Um, he's not doing so well. He's, like, completely distraught at this point. I'm pretty sure he, like, throws himself on the floor of the <laughs> yeah, stage. That's, that's exactly like... what I was picturing. He's just lying down like a two-year-old having a temper tantrum. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, at one point, he was like, I'll never get it. Never, never, never. We have Right Track. Oh, amazing song. Amazing song. This is a song where I'm like, okay, it doesn't matter if the song serves no purpose. I really think it does. Because it's sort of the leading player stopping and checking in and reminding us a little bit, but not too much of revealing his hand of his agenda. Whoever is playing Pippin actually gets to dance for like the entire one time in the entire show. And it's like, oh, like, maybe you're not entirely useless, but I know you're supposed to be. So whatever. And it's just so fun. Yeah, I mean, this is a whole, I'm gonna like pick you up by your bootstraps. You're almost there. We're almost at the end of the show. You're doing fine. Keep going. This is a song that I guess if the actor, the Pippin character just needs to be reminded that he has to continue. I mean, this is something else that feels to me like a really natural synthesis of Schwartz's work and Fosse's work. It feels much more chill. And also the rhythm is so great. Like the there's all these random sort of rests in the song where it'll be like beat, beat, next line. Now this time three beats next line. And Ariel and I were both just we knew exactly when each next line was. <laughs> Cause each step's indispensable when you're uh anyway. So that leads us into this sort of vignette where they're like, yeah, we ran out of time to cover other broad topics of ways you could find meaning in your life in any long stretch. So we'll just do little ones like, oh, and then Pippin did art. And then Pippin did religion. And it's like two lines each. But we're right up to our foot fetish stuff. Right. This was a song that was actually not on the cast recording. It's called There He Was. And we're kind of introduced to Catherine, who finds Pippin lying on the ground and decides to take him in because of the arch of his foot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think it was just supposed to be a weird joke, but it comes off as, like, super weird. Not to shame anyone out there, but... It may just be part of the productions that I've seen of it. And also the pause that she takes before she says something about his foot is that she's really attracted to... A different part of his anatomy. Which I would just... get, but they, they really run with the foot thing. There's like a spotlight right on the foot. I mean, it would kind of be inappropriate to put a spotlight on his groin. The, this show would do it. <laughs> so who is Catherine? Nobody. Who is she? She's a single mother with an adorable boy. Who's annoying as hell. Who has an annoying duck. We're introduced to Catherine... And we're introduced to her both as the character she's playing and in the context of her in the troupe where she's supposed to be this sort of like actress, maybe a little bit of a diva. On the one hand, they're like, Catherine is the interesting player who starts like going off book and like the other actors have relationships with her. But then she only ever does anything because of Pippin and Pippin, the most bland, like, boring, <laughs> generic character in the entire show somehow motivates her. So he what, touches her hand. He's not supposed to touch her hand. Right, it's like... They're not supposed to do that. Right. We'll I get mean, to that. that. She sings, she sings Ordinary Woman, and I know that you had some problems with this song. I just don't like it. It's not an interesting song. It's just musically or lyrically. Lyrically. And it's just... I always hated it. It was never my favorite. Well, she sings a song about how great she is, and she's not particularly great. And I mean this nothing against <laughs> the perf and like anyone's performance. I don't think there's anything you can really 
do with this role because if you try to get give depth to it it doesn't really make sense like if you make her too likable it's like what does she see in pippin because that's the thing it's like she's like she makes a joke about the arch of his foot but that's sort of that's the line that's been written for her and as you reference, right. there's a scene where she's trying to talk to him and she starts softening because he like holds her hand, but she says they don't usually do that, which is kind of a weird moment of like, how many times have you done this? And the lead player is sort of getting jumpy that she's going off book, but Pippin's awful. He's not a good partner. Like apparently the lovemaking is okay. He's not a good father figure. But what I really think that it ultimately comes down to in Catherine, it's like in the Truman Show, when the girlfriend who's been cast to be his girlfriend starts developing feelings for him. And there's a lot in the show that's two-dimensional where stuff is happening because they need it to happen. But then when they try to get more interesting and creative, it kind of backfires. If you think too much about it, which I do, because I'm me and also because feminism. I, you know, feminism just in the sense of women having any sort of interesting, compelling thing about them in a piece of culture. But Extraordinary's a good song, though. Yeah, it's a fun song, but it also kind of explains that Pippin's an asshole. Pippin's really a jerk. I mean, and, and it's interesting sort of seeing the other side of that, because this whole show, he's been yearning to be interesting and fulfilled, and he says that to Catherine... And here we see it, and we sort of see the payoff is like, I don't want to, like, mend the barn or whatever. And it's like, yeah. interesting people still got to do the dishes sometimes, Pippin Jesus. He's but, like, I am too special for this. That's certainly plays into your theory about adolescence. Yeah, no, I... This is another song that they rewrote for no discernible reason. I get it, it's weird that he references there being, like, a griffin on this medieval oh, estate. I love that, though. I mean, like, I, I love it, too, but it's, it's like, they rewrote the entire song. Extraordinary is a fun song with a lot of, like, cool imagery and really, you know, just because we don't like him. There's a point with the griffin line with the... And the moat won't stop leaking and the goat won't stop shrieking and the, the griffin, griffin keeps, keeps losing his hair. <laughs> Which is yeah, just, I'm like, just... it's It's funny. Yeah. I like it. Also, it's like, she's supposed to be a widow of, like, a large state, but it's like, that doesn't mean there's a moat. It's like a farm estate. I don't know. I like it. But well, anyway. The new production really took the whole farm thing to an extreme. There were, like, all of these cast members in animal costumes. <laughs> like, there were three pigs in a row eating out of a trough. There was, like, a cow nearby. Like, it was... That is interesting in terms of, like... I the, the company and, like, the actors as props. It's like, we were watching um, No Time at All, and I was like, why are all the male ensemble members just, like, strewn across the stage? It's like, because they're props. The whole show is a farce, but this really, this really took it too far. So then uh, Pippin and Catherine do the do. Oh, yeah. They have, like, a sex interlude. Yeah, for no real <laughs> reason. I was like, what's the point of this? And Ariel was like, it's funny. And I'm like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I really think it's just there so the leading player can just be like, so stuff happened. Some of this, some of that, a lot of that. I just get really nervous because part of it involves as a metaphor for Pippin and Catherine failing to consummate their love the first time. Sexy dancers wearing next to nothing. Good lord, the costumes <laughs> in this show. And they go to do the sort of a sort of like a dirty dancing-esque catch and they fall over. And I'm just like, ooh, it's two actors on like a hard wooden stage. And like, they really have to like nail this stage fall. And they do. Anyway. Oh, a prayer for a duck. Oh yeah, at some point there's a duck and it dies, whatever. So Theo, Catherine's son, has a duck and the duck dies and Pippin sings this prayer for the duck where he cheers up this kid and is like, I'm actually okay at something. Like, I, I successfully cheered this kid up. Maybe this is for me. Like I, wanna, I don't want to swear, but also there's something, a good word that rhymes with a duck. And I want to be like, duck that. I mean, the last four lines all rhyme with duck is we haven't cursed our luck or run amok to prayers we've stuck. Please reward our pluck and save this duck. All right. That is pretty cute. <laughs> it's hard to tell whether this at this point is uh, if Pippin is off script or if this is still on script. So essentially, as soon as Catherine shows up, things start going awry. And from right. On the Right Track is immediately preceding Catherine, and the leading player is almost kind of jubilant. Like, he clearly feels really good, even though Pippin feels really bad. And he's like trust us, this is going the way it's supposed to go. And in Catherine, he's increasingly popping up to, like, correct her on lines, to commit microaggressions against her. Right, but he really seems agitated about the direction the show's taking. 
things are going okay enough that he introduces us to Love Song, which we have to talk about. La la la, Love Song. I Um, don't understand why Bob Fosse took with you and was like, let's make it this like subversive weird song. And then he plays Love Song completely straight. And it's so bad. Oh, so Catherine tries to formally make Pippin the head of the household and he panics. And there is a song here because he does do a mini reprise of Corner of the Sky. And I was trying to think about the pacing here and sort of if this is the right place, though how he's come to this point and how long it's taken and how he's thinking back to the beginning of the show. And I think for me, it does work. My thought here is that he, he was finally finding a place where he seemed to fit and then all of a sudden he remembered that he's meant for better things. His life is worth more than this. So he runs off, which is what he was supposed to do according to the designs of the show. And Catherine sings, I guess I'll miss the man. The version we were watching just cut out because I was like, this doesn't matter. And it's like, yeah, fair enough. Especially because the song is addressing my point of why does she like him? But it doesn't answer our question. I won't miss his moods, his gloomy solitudes, his burnt abrasive style. And then the last couplet is, but please don't get me wrong, he He was was the the best best. to come along in a long, long while. Technically not a couplet. And they spent a whole song trying to explain away the thing that's bothering me, and I don't feel, I don't feel comforted. I still don't know what Catherine sees in him and why she just doesn't want to do to him what presumably she's done to all the other people, which is lead them to the finale. Well, luckily, Pippin runs straight into the finale. Yep. So we learn what the finale is that they have been teasing for a little while. What is the finale? Pippin needs to light himself on fire. And that's the finale of the show. Or that should be the finale of the show. The finale of the show is supposed to be that you've been watching, I don't know, we'd call it a snuff play (laughs) this entire time. And Pippin is supposed to self-immolate and die. The song is called Finale. First of all, the leading player, this is sort of his moment to shine. If Pippin really had a moment to shine, like, it's sort of passed by now. This is, like, all the leading player. And he has to sell us as someone who's, like, personally frustrated and has a goal and is trying to achieve it. And also he has to be, like, seductive as, like, an agent of death. And, oh, Ben Vereen yeah. is so great. The fire metaphor seems to come late, and but, but they sell it here, here, where they say, think about the sun, Pippin, you want to be bright and brilliant and glorious. The sun is those things. If you set yourself on fire, it's a final perfect act. And even though nothing else has been fulfilling, what will be fulfilling is the ultimate culmination. And it's like, you know, the logic doesn't hold up, but they but they make it sound really good. They're all back in their costumes from the original number. So something I read, and this was someone online, they yeah. were saying that like Bob Fosse, who was this like brilliant troubled man, sort of struggled with ideas of suicide and that Pippin might have been cathartic for him in that sense. And which is weird because you don't think of suicide as... As beautiful? Not only beautiful, but as exciting. Not just to Pippin, but the idea that the audience walked in expecting to see this. There's this. There's a line about, like, you can't disappoint all these people at $25 a seat. Yeah, and- which could also, I mean, to if we want to take it back to Bob Fosse, could be about his relationship to performance and his representation of himself was for public consumption. Maybe I'm reading into this too far and trying to make it <laughs> deeper know. than it is. I mean, the song is beautiful and I love it, but it's so dark. And if you really think about it, all these people are like, kill yourself. This is what they do. They enjoy seducing people into playing this role and trying to make them kill themselves. So one critique that I read online is that it's sort of the same as like the orgy we saw before, that that whenever you sort of have a group number, it's sort of like group sex, and that the sort of culmination of Pippin being consumed in fire like for the crowd is like, this orgiastic mass orgasm, essentially. What what I don't know if I quite understand is why Pippin doesn't go through with it. I think he realizes that as much as death is the only way to fully complete your life, it's not going to fulfill him in the way that he hopes. He takes a moment and stops and decides that he'd much rather go back to Catherine, who... It was like the last place that he felt he belonged, but he ran away because he thought he could do better. And if this is what's better, this isn't what he wants. 
Pippin says no. Catherine shows up. He stands with Catherine. He's made his choice. And the leading player is not having it. Nope. He flips out. He deconstructs the entire show. He's like, okay, you don't want any of this. Like, take out the lights. We're going to take off out all the colored lights. Now we're going to wipe you of your makeup, strip you of your costumes. Okay, that's still not enough. Get rid of the sets. They fly the sets back up into the fly space. And then the leading player sends the rest of the troop away. First, they turn on the audience. They're, they need that they want their finale so bad that when Pippin chickens out, they try to, like, convince the audience to send someone up. Oh, right. Can you yeah. imagine if someone from the audience was just like, sure, and then they have to, like, ignore them? But yeah, no one from the audience agrees to get up on stage and self-immolate, so right. everyone pieces out. That's when the leading player kind of strips everything out. Is he's like, okay, you're sure, like... Bye. I like the moment like, where he's about to freak out at Pippin and the actor, you know, the actress playing Fastrata like grabs him and reminds him to keep his cool and that the audience is there and that he needs to address them and he like pulls himself together again. I just love that moment. So before we get to the end of the okay. ending when we can start fighting, okay. <laughs> we can talk about the ending as it was in the original production. Okay. Pippin and Theo, who no one cares about, are left on stage, and Catherine asks Pippin, like, do you feel like, do you feel like a sellout? And Pippin goes, like, no. She goes, how do you feel? And he goes, trapped. Which is, like, better than you can say at the end of a lot of musical comedies. Like, ta-da! And, like, that's the end of the show, and then they go into curtain call. That is the ending I like. Ariel is going to argue for the current ending of the show that's been going on for, for decades, really. And I will admit to you that Stephen Schwartz says, I like the new ending better. So the current ending is, he says, kind of trapped, which isn't that bad for the end of a musical comedy. And Pippin and Catherine walk off stage and Theo's left alone. And he's kind of just running around the stage, like playing on the set pieces. And he starts singing Corner of the Sky. And the end is you hear the beginning, like music of magic to do and it's kind of this whole feeling of this is cyclical this happens every night and this is like this is going to continue happening and more people are trying to be extraordinary for example in my little jewish private high school the leading player being like hey everyone let's go back to the stage and start like doing jazz hands with this kid who we can like convince to kill himself it's interesting because I think the phrase you used for the ending I like is cop-out, and that's exactly yeah. how I would describe yours. Oh, God. This show is ending this way. The show is ending this way of, like, the character in some ways through an arc, in some ways almost back where he started, where he he's made his decision, but he's never going to stop feeling this intense ambivalence. I really like the ending with Theo, and it kind of... I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but they made Theo a little bit older in the new production, so he was kind of on the verge of adolescence, and I mean, I'm gonna keep coming back to this show is, to me, relates to the kind of going through the process of adolescence and growing up and right. realizing your potential, and this is like, so Pippin did that. He grew up. He, he grew up and he ended up with Trapped, which is the way adults apparently wind up. I'm not going to ever find out. Right. And then, I'm not going to grow there, up. And but... then there's Theo with this, with this, like, um, with this childhood wonder. And he's like, I can do anything I want. I can be anything I want. I mean, it, the music starts to play for the troupe again. And it's like, it's like all of this childhood, like, wonder that he has, it's like, Oh, that's going to get squashed. Yeah, but it feels a little bit to me leading the horse to water with the audience of, in terms of, like, I can remember how Pippin was at the beginning of the show when when he had that sort of wonder, and I I don't need to be reminded, and I just like that sort of, like, usually I hate when shows have, as you call it, cop out with, like, the, the weird ending, I sort of like that feeling in the pit of my stomach where I was like, the show is trying to answer all of this and it doesn't. And I feel like even though that plays, the other ending plays into that point really well, it doesn't 
you don't have that same feeling in the pit of your stomach of like of like when you're listening to a song and you don't hear the last note and you're waiting for that resolution and it never comes and I hate that but for Pippin I think it's actually sort of a smart interesting thing to do and it's not that it's ruined by adding this little sort of epilogue but I think it dilutes it just just a little bit and I think it takes a little bit of the punch out I I I like it I I get chills from the finale Every single time I listen to it, watch oh, yeah. it. I, I don't want to say it's I mean, fun, but it's it's a fun dark show. Maybe that's maybe that's why high schools do it all the time. Maybe isn't it isn't about so much like the directors who like think that it's something that it's not or think it'll be easy to do because you're going to have intentionally cheap looking costumes. But maybe it's because it speaks to teenagers. So we've both made our points. What I will say is the greatest cop-out is the cast recording where they just kind of like fade out the finale song. But then again, like it's a cast recording. It's not meant to supplant a show. So to finish up with a few things to talk about, I just want to briefly touch on how this show did at the Tonys because it's sort of a notorious in-joke in the theater community that Stephen Schwartz has no Tonys. This show came out the same year as A Little Night Music. Mm. And as much as I like Pippin, which I do, A Little Night Music is a better show. <laughs> Stephen Schwartz lost his Tony to Stephen Sondheim. Um, they, did give, they did give Fosse direction and choreography, it lost best book, it lost score, it got actor. I mean, Ben Vereen, he got a Tony for this musical, and boy, did he deserve it. Yeah. It got scenic design, and it got lighting design and choreography and direction. The revival, which generally got good reviews, so it won best revival of a musical. It was Pippin or Annie or Edwin Drood or Cinderella. What I also like to do with these is I like to talk about our favorite and least favorite lyrics in the show. Let's start negative so we can get positive. My least favorite is actually um, cats fit on the windowsill, children fit in the snow. Because snow is cold. (laughs) (laughs) You never as a kid felt like, you know, you were wearing your oversized snowsuit and you were like making a snow angel and you felt good. No. (laughs) You can blame that lyric on Mrs. Stephen Schwartz. I guess it's kind of her fault. And also it's it's cats fit on the windowsill. You think of like a ray of sun. So it's the sun as contrasted Um. with the cold snow. To me, it just never made sense. It kind of felt like all the other lyrics in that succession, like, make a lot of sense of, like, where things belong. And then it's like, children fit in the snow. It's like, what? Okay, so Miley's favorite song is a good chunk of the song Love Song. I think I might just go to the reference Lavender Soap and Lotions because they're just, like, things that people who are in love, like, deal with. Like, private little jokes and silly pet names. It's like, yeah, okay, it's cheesy. Yeah, fine, that's a part of being in love. And this is, like... This weirdly specific, like, lavender soap and lotions, and it's, like, that's so 70s of, like, hey, honey, let's get the lavender soap and lotions and rub it into each other's bodies later. You just name other things, just being, like, driving to Starbucks and ordering each other Starbucks. I mean, but that song is so ridiculous that it almost reminds me of Forbidden Broadway. What's your favorite lyric in the show? Okay, so my first favorite is, well, here I am to seize my day if someone would just tell me when the hell it is. That's a great lyric. That's one of my sister's favorite lyrics, in fact. Anyway, he's like, okay, I'm here. I'm ready. What do I do now? It's one of the show in a nutshell in terms of both like theme and style. Ooh, that's a good show. My other one is think about the beauty in one perfect flame. I just, I like the imagery of... Before I even realized what that song was about, I just thought that was such a pretty line. And then I realized what was it was about, and I guess my sadistic sense of humor. That's funny because my choices are like a clever lyric and then a lyric from the finale that just weirdly speaks to me. <laughs> this is a lyric that's essentially an entire like verse. But it's, <laughs> now listen to me closely, I'll endeavor to explain what separates a charlatan from a Charlemagne, a rule confessed by generals illustrious and various, though pompous as a Pompey, or as daring as a Darius, a simple rule that every good man knows by heart, it's smarter to be lucky than it's lucky to be smart. Okay. Like a little charlatan Charlemagne thing just makes the whole thing, like it's just so clever. But then he's like literally referencing like famous classical generals and like Stephen Schwartz, I wish you could be, like, smart and sincere at the same time. So I was so sure this was going to be my lyric. And and the line is, if I'm never tied to anything, I'll never be free. 
and maybe it's just where I'm at, I'm at in life and the choices that I've made for myself at this point. And maybe this speaks to the show that if I'm aging up to the show and it's continuing to speak to me really well. When we were watching it, I joked, I said out loud, like, tattoo that on my arm. For whatever reason, all of a sudden it's this quote that just really just reminded me a lot of what makes me happy and a lot of the way that I, like, connect to, for example, the people that I love. I like that line, too. It, it, it makes sense. Here's something he had to say about his Bob Fosse feud. My issue with Bob Fosse was not so much the darkness of his vision, but the tawdriness and the emphasis on bumps and grinds and cheap jokes. I also felt that the leading player was undercutting the focus on Pippin in some cases and forcing Pippin to become a relatively one-dimensional character. On the one hand, yes, Pippin's a one-dimensional character, leading player undercuts that there's lots of sex jokes and bumps and grinds. I can't imagine it would be better if that were not the case. Right. So ultimately, I was trying, I was saying, I'm going to approach Pippin again, and we'll decide if at this point in my life I like it. I think I do. I really like the show. I have always liked the show and the music, and you can take it out of the context of the 70s, and it's still, it's still appropriate. Anyone, any age can get something out of this show. Kids are going to think of it as more fun and they maybe won't understand the ending fully. And then as you age, you kind of pick up more and more about what the show actually is about. And the older you are, the more uncomfortably turned on you can be by all the ensembleist dancing. So, Ariel, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. This was fun. <laughs> I'm I glad you it. thought it was fun because I will force you to come back. But thanks for listening, everyone, to Pick a Little, Talk a Little, Pal Tal. Join us next week when we talk about another show that will probably make me just talk about my feelings and also about, like, how sexy ensemble dancing is because that's, like, number three or four on the reasons I like musicals and traditional musicals. Set yourself on fire, Pippin. Set yourself on fire. Thanks for listening to Pick a Little, Talk a Little. You can follow us on Twitter at PalTalPodcast, as in P-A-L-T-A-L. Email us at PalTalPodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Pick a Little, Talk a Little. We are produced and edited by the incomparable Rachel Jacobs. You can find her at Rachel-Jacobs.com or on Twitter at WTFRJK. I've been your host, Gabrielle Gazelowitz. I'm at GabrielleGazelowitz.com, which is spelled in a way that you probably wouldn't guess. And I'm on Twitter at Gabby Gazelowitz. So see if you can find me. So until next time, and as they sing in 42nd Street, good night, baby. Good night. The milkman's on his way. Sleep tight, baby. Sleep tight. Let's call it a day. <laughs>